welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I am Jen Pan, uh, here again with none other than Kale Brooks to help me open today's show. Kale, it's been a minute. How are you? Oh, it's good. It's been, I guess it's, it has been a minute. Yeah. we've. People don't like... necessarily know this because you pre-recorded a show for last week, but you were on vacation. We've been bouncing. We've been globetrotting around the country <laughs> trying to get get to the bottom of what's going on and uh and also enjoying some sun and beach and uh although ocean maybe in your case in the ocean and sharks and all these things although the sharks and the sun and it's been a dangerous globetrotting mission but uh i hope you guys appreciate the fruits of our of our labor you made it back alive um we are gonna be talking about uh issues of global importance (laughs) Jen, I wanted to talk to you briefly, actually, yes. uh, about uh, there's not one, maybe two, maybe many more. It's like unclear how many. It seems like we're heading into a storm of many simultaneous uh, viral diseases happening at the same time. Obviously, COVID is still uh, very much a thing and is actually in a new wave at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other big story that is emerging right now is the fact that uh, monkeypox is uh, has reemerged. And yes. monkeypox, if you don't know, is um, cousins. It's related. It's in the same family as smallpox. They're both pox. Um, so the main thing that uh, would be recognizable about it is the lesions that appear on your body. It's all over your body, but especially probably the most cumbersome and painful have to deal with lesions that end up in your throat, in your mouth, in your anus. Uh, it's made it when people get uh, monkeypox, it's extremely uncomfortable. It's, some people have died. It's, but it's not a highly lethal uh, disease. The reason why we're talking about it is because uh, the U S is seeing a rise in monkeypox and has done very little to actually deal with it. And the fact that there has been such a limited response actually probably is exacerbating it into a situation where it's going to become more and more of a problem, whereas it could have been uh, contained and resolved much earlier Mm -hmm. had we had a healthcare system in this country. But as we all know, and as you probably know, uh, we don't have a healthcare system in this Mm -hmm. country. Uh, We have a couple agencies here and there um, at the federal level and at the state level that do not coordinate effectively at all. Yeah. We have an army of private health insurance companies that are just looking to make a profit. Um, we have hospitals, some of them private, some of them public. Uh, but overall, there's nothing that actually stitches this together. And so it's just one more example that, right. although it seems tragic right now, actually could become like so much more of like a, a massive issue just because we do not effectively respond to these things in mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's very disheartening to have basically just emerged. I mean, as you pointed out, COVID's not really over, but to have just emerged from several years of like hundreds of that, de- I mean, a million deaths, uh, lockdowns, un- unemployment, and be confronted with the possibility of repeating that all over again. And something I was thinking about was, I mean, on the subject that you just brought up of, you know, the fact that we don't have a functioning healthcare system and how much worse that makes uh, a global pandemic is there was a study that came out earlier this year um, by some researchers, uh, I think at Yale and at UMass Amherst. And they estimated that 
uh, like upwards of 200,000 lives could have been saved uh, during COVID by a Medicare for all system. And I want to talk about that a little bit because, um, you know, as people I'm sure remember, uh, COVID treatment, vaccines and uh, testing uh, is all free or, you know, theoretically it was all supposed to be free. And I think that, you know, at least in my experience, like it did work out that way. I, I didn't pay for the vaccine. I didn't pay for any tests or treatment or anything like that. Um, but these researchers point out that the reason why a Medicare for all system would have prevented hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths is um, is because it encourages early and preventative care. Right. So the researchers point out that if we had a Medicare for all system, uh, uh, a.k.a. a healthcare system that isn't based on your employment situation, uh, when lockdowns happened and a bunch of businesses closed and people subsequently lost their health insurance, uh, again, even though COVID treatment was free, some people who had gotten sick might have delayed going to the doctor or seeking out primary care because they weren't sure if, you know, what they had was actually COVID or, you know, they didn't want to be saddled with other bills and other charges, which did happen, by the way, you know, even though, of course, as I keep saying, the everything related to COVID was supposed to be free, like lots of people got stuck with additional bills or were wrongly charged or, you know, had to settle up with their insurance or whatever in other ways. Um, so there's that. Uh, another another thing is that uh, the Medi a Medicare for all system, uh, just if we had had that in general, more people would have a relationship with a primary care physician, uh, which is, you know, something that I think, you know, uh, a quarter of people in America like don't have a kind of longstanding or continuous relationship with a primary care physician. And these researchers, these researchers point out that if more people had a relationship with a doctor, uh, rates of vac vaccination would have been higher. Right. So, you know, you like talk to your doctor, you know them, you trust them. And that would have encouraged greater rates of vaccination early on and across the board. And then the third piece is related to both of those things. Uh, hospitals, as we well remember, were overwhelmed uh, because of the kind of compounded issues of the prior two things that I talked about. So uh, that's how these researchers kind of arrived at the number of like upwards of 200,000 lives could have been saved if we had just had a national healthcare system to begin with. And uh, that's a little long-winded and, and I have a little more to say about that, but um, Kale, any, any thoughts on how our broken healthcare system is probably uh, not helping the developing monkeypox situation. No, I mean, it's it's not just not helping. It's probably primarily responsible yeah. for its spread right now. So mm -hmm. like to your first point about preventative care. Uh, so the, there isn't a single monkey, uh, monkeypox vaccine. The vaccine that is being used right now to treat it uh, is it's uh, it basically was implemented or was created in order to deal with smallpox it deals with the entire pox family effectively. If you were born in the 60s or earlier, you probably are vaccinated, um, although you can look that up. I don't know for you watching if you have it or not. But if you're born after you know, 1970 and onwards, there's a good chance that you aren't vaccinated. And so you probably should get vaccinated at some point. Um, one of the things is that this is, I think, wrongly uh, being treated as like a as a gay uh, illness, a gay mm -hmm. disease, um, like meaning that it affects gay people, uh, people who have uh, gay sex. And that has been talked about as like a sexually transmitted disease when it really isn't at all. It's still a respiratory um, transmitted disease where uh, it's particles in, you know, in the air that go from one individual to another. So it's just close contact. 
And even though right now it has been primarily, uh, you know, LGBTQ people who've been, uh, who've been getting the, the disease, there's absolutely nothing stopping this from being contained to those individuals. Um, the, uh, in the U.S., I think there was like hundreds of thousands of the, the smallpox vaccine that we had, but had expired and were no longer usable. Mm-hmm. We also have, um, the New York Times was reporting on this, that there was something like over 300,000 uh, doses available over in Denmark right. uh, that the U.S. has very slowly decided to, to bring back over. Um, and that really the estimates right now are, are that the U.S. is not going to actually have adequate dosage mm-hmm. available until like early 2023. Yeah. So great. <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. Great. So <laughs> uh, the fact that like we don't have preventative care, we don't actually mm-hmm. have a healthcare system that says, well, actually, you know what, maybe diseases come back sometimes and we mm-hmm. should have, uh, we should have uh, vaccines and various preventative medical services and care like stored properly, ready mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. in case these things come about, which is of course a cost, but like it's, the alternative, as we've seen time and time again, is that when you don't put money into these things and when yeah. we have a system that does put money into, you know, maximizing profits for private individuals and companies mm-hmm. and investors, um, you end up having horrific social outcomes, health outcomes right. that completely could have been prevented if you actually just put human needed interest right. above profit. Right. I want to make just one last point on the uh the other ill effects of the government sort of dragging its feet on dealing with what appears to be, you know, uh, another like burgeoning epidemic. And that's uh, something that I just like constantly think about is how slow the U.S. was to respond to uh, COVID when it first started developing. And that was a you know perfect storm of obviously uh, the Donald Trump administration, you know, not a uh, uh, Donald Trump's particular brand of ego and not wanting to, you know, uh, create, uh, acknowledge a pandemic. There was that. Um, but that wasn't the only thing. Obviously, the U.S., as we've been talking about, lacked just the healthcare infrastructure in general to sort of nip COVID in the bud early on. Uh, American style federalism just meant that, you know, e- every state and every city was basically not operating on the same level for, for better or for worse. Uh, so, you know, the response was always staggered and uneven. Um, and, you know, just uh, uh, to go along with the healthcare stuff, like just a complete lack of a social safety net and like any kind of uh, social support that could, you know, deal with s- sudden and mass like work closures and unemployment and everything. And what basically happened is, as we all know, is because the U.S. government basically signaled to the population that you're on your own, COVID, which was and is a public health crisis, quickly turned into a culture war, right, from like Mm. all sides. And, uh, you know, Kale, you and I were talking earlier today about like why COVID didn't lead to a basically didn't lead to any kind of meaningful healthcare reform. And I think that a large part of it was that uh, you know, there was no coordinated response from the government uh, and it quickly devolved into a culture war. And I remember, you know, uh, 
I always have to mention Bernie Sanders, but in the early days, he was advocating for things like the government uh, manufacturing and distributing masks uh, to everybody, you know, free. Mm-hmm. Uh, he advocated that very early on. He wanted to, you know, pay people to stay home. He like he he tried. None of that happened, of course. And something I think about is whether any of that would have like helped stave off the culture war that developed as I keep saying, from just all of us being in a vacuum and being told, like, it's on you to deal with this. Right. I mean, even like the, for instance, if you compare and contrast the U.S. response to, for instance, like the Chinese response, Mm -hmm. the Chinese states response. No, but like they actually like, I mean, it was like very forceful. It was like it was uh, overwhelming in some cases. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of issues, but like and there's lots of issues with the uh, with the Chinese government. We're not. I'm not talking. I don't even want to get into the whole thing. That's about a different China. episode. <laughs> yeah, we can. We're going to talk about China at some point, but not right now. But the point is just that, like, by March, by like April of 2020, mm-hmm. they had effectively dealt with COVID in their country. That they had actually like capped and like actually uh, mm-hmm. restrained the spread of the disease. Mm-hmm. The fact that it has it has remained a massive global problem has to do, like you're saying, with the American state's complete and utter inability to actually contain this, like Mm -hmm. both in the response, but just in the actual capabilities Mm -hmm. that like countries that actually have greater state capacity, regardless Mm -hmm. of kind of political um, ideology intention, the, you know, what, how they're like actually operating, but actual greater state capacity has actually led to greater containment of Mm -hmm. of the disease whereas in the u.s like we have effectively allowed it to become this persistent global problem and that is directly because of the power of the american capitalist class Mm -hmm. the fact Mm -hmm. that the american capitalists have completely just destroyed like the actual infrastructure of of the american state has like made it incapable of taking care of these these, like social problems right Right. that they are directly responsible for the fact that like we still have to worry about this and monkeypox and Mm -hmm. all these other possible viral diseases that you know down the line might be more contagious and more deadly than something like monkeypox uh, since you brought up China, I, w- I want to bring up a, a different <laughs> cross-national comparison, uh, and that's the Nordic states. And I'm yeah. specifically thinking about Sweden, because I remember, you know, when COVID started becoming a thing in 2020, like a lot of right-wingers got super interested in Sweden because Sweden wasn't doing any lockdowns. They're basically like, we're going to, or at least the Republican narrative was like, they're just like going about business as usual. And it's like, not a big deal. Uh, and, you know, the, the citizens of Sweden can be trusted to, you know, take personal responsibility and, you know, decide for themselves, like whether this is a big deal or not. And that was always very spurious because the thing is, uh, it is true that Sweden, I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't like replay Sweden's like complete uh, response to the coronavirus. But I do remember in the beginning, you know, Sweden was uh, not draconian with lockdowns. It really Mm -hmm. did seem like people were going about their business and it did seem like the citizens of Sweden were sort of taking personal responsibility and like figuring out what worked for them and their, and their own families. And I just want to say, uh, I'm sure everybody who's watching this show agrees or, you know, is already aware, but that's because there is a very high level of public trust in Sweden. And that's because they have a really strong welfare state and really strong, uh, you know, worker protections. And what I mean by that is people, uh, people could, 
people knew that if they were sick, they could stay home from work because they have a very generous paid and sick leave, uh, you know, uh, uh, program, right? Like they, of course, have a national healthcare system. So people could be trusted uh, to kind of go to the doctor on their own when they felt like they were sick. Like it, it just goes back to what we were saying before about um, a healthcare infrastructure and a strong social safety net. Like that, like that kind of thing isn't just good for people. It also creates the sort of like personal responsibility, if you want to call it that personal and social responsibility that like the U.S. government was demanding from people without providing any of the supports to enable any of that. Right. Yeah. The Swedes and the Norwegians, Mm -hmm. it was get vaccinated and then get on with your life. Yeah. Like, right. And because we actually have society. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It worked for them because they have a society, not because, you know, they're better people or there's something about like the Nordic brain or attitude or whatever, but because like this basically like, yeah, like the States enabled that level of self-sufficiency. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. And then you contrast that to the U.S. where like there was another story that actually Jacobin ran recently by Matthew Cunningham Cook about how Amazon is purchasing uh, one medical, uh, which is uh, a primary uh, health care provider, uh, a private health care provider. Um, and uh, that's what our system does. We the yeah. state doesn't actually do anything we and in like it's it's still just remarkable i mean like this is it's like insane to think about it's still just remarkable that like the state in spite of everything that we've been through the last few years is not willing or more likely cannot because of the power of capital and business actually take take control over public health as as an issue it remains something that they just say whatever let the market figure this out let yeah private capital deal with healthcare. And uh, we have to, this is, I think what the left has to be focused on. Like it's, it's only going to become more of an issue. This has to be our focus. We have to go back to Medicare for all and prioritizing healthcare. Sorry. I 100% agree. Um, All right. Well, on that cheery note, let's dive into the rest of the show. All right. So I am now here with our friend Katie Rader. She is a professor of political science at Christopher Newport University. Also, of course, a board member of the Center for Working Class Politics. Katie, great to see you. Thank you so much, Jen. Great to be here. So uh, the reason why we wanted to have you on today is uh, I think as lots of people are probably aware, there was some very interesting uh, New York Times polling that came out recently that basically showed that Democrats uh, now have a bigger advantage among white college graduates than they do among non-white voters of all educational levels. Uh, And this polling also pointed out that there are some pretty stark class divides on what issues uh, voters say are most important to them. So I I wanted to dive into that with you. Um, But first, I want to read a line sort of summarizing this research from Axios, because I thought this was pretty provocative. So uh, recently, Axios wrote, Democrats are becoming the party of upscale voters concerned more about issues like gun control and abortion rights. Republicans are quietly building a multiracial coalition of working class voters with inflation as an accelerant. All right. So uh, I should mention, for those who don't know, your research interests, uh, of course, concern this ongoing problem of class dealignment uh, and also, you know, the the Center for Working Class Politics, which we've covered on the show before, also explores that problem. So what do you make of this new polling and, you know, the Axios assessment of the Democratic Party? And what, what do you think all of this suggests about the trajectory that the Democratic Party is on right now? 
Yeah, so I think that you you said it well exactly what the uh what the Times reported and what the I think the sort of liberal and democratic establishment which a lot of people I think are looking to this poll uh, and thinking about the midterm elections coming up and what that's going to mean for Democrats. Um certainly it's looking at this one moment in time when I think uh, uh, concerns about uh, the reversal of Roe and concerns about election secure elections given, uh, given the January 6th commission. Those are sort of on the minds of the likely Democratic voters. Um, and really what the, what I think the poll showed and what, what pundits and pollsters have been latching onto is basically a flip in what you saw in a Democratic coalition in something like the 2016 congressional elections where you had Lots of support, uh, majority support, um, and a really huge margin for Democrats among non-white voters, uh, and also uh, less support uh, among college-educated whites. And this, they found basically the reverse. Now, Democrats have a, a pretty large margin uh, among uh, among these uh, college-educated whites and are losing ground among non-white voters, and in particular, I think, Hispanic voters. I think it's important, you know, one of the things I think this this poll is looking to, and one of the uh, I think you know you mentioned our work at the Center for Working Class Politics. One of the things, the sort of uh, misnomers or or incorrect assessments, is the demography as destiny idea that mm-hmm. Democrats just kind of continue to exist, and they're going to gain support from non-white voters uh, just because of who they are. So I think in some ways this poll shows that that's really um, not the case. But I also think that uh, one thing that didn't get highlighted as much is that not only is this, I think this this class dealignment and the shift among uh, working class and, and using sort of education as imperfect as it is as a, a measure for class, and we can, I'm sure, talk about that more, this really flip in support. So, so the Democratic Party is looking less like the uh, the FDR coalition of the New Deal and working class support. Uh, those voters we see increasingly moving over to the Republican Party, um, which I think really does say some stuff about the upcoming midterm elections. But this mm-hmm. is also, you know, one of the things that we uh, have have talked about at the center and are, are conscious of in our work is that this is a much longer uh, trend than just this year or, you know, failure to pass any build back better uh, sort of sort of to bring people back in. This is a this is a much longer trend. Mm mm-hmm. I want to get your thoughts on the extent to which you see cultural issues driving or playing a role in this de-alignment, right? Because I think that that has sort of emerged as like the most tantalizing narrative to a Mm. lot of people, um, you know, even people in the mainstream who, you know, are worried about this class de-alignment and want to do something about it. I think a lot of the leading commentators sort of point to, uh, you know, what they see as cultural issues that the Democrats, that they see the Democrats uh, tacking to the left on. Um, Now, obviously, the Center for Working Class Politics has something to say about, you know, the, 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 the cultural stuff as well. Um, but, but just as a broad question, um, is it the cultural issues that are driving this dealignment, um, um, either long-term or short-term? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a piece of it, but also, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that in looking back at the data, looking back at this survey for today, you know, they also referenced, uh, you know, I think it was particularly looking at Hispanic voters who prior, you know, they also asked about issue priorities and mm-hmm. they, they broke it down exactly like you are, which I think is, you know, people trying to figure out what's at the root of this, uh, this uh, de-alignment or this shift. So thinking about the cultural issues, the ones they looked at were abortion, uh, uh, gun control, and also threats to democracy, which again, I think is 
pointing towards uh, January 6th and the mm -hmm. ongoing um, investigation. And then the economy, which is one of my favorite uh, questions that we ask. And actually something we're going to uh, that will be forthcoming in some of our, our work with Center for Working Class Politics. It's not always clear to me what it means when people say they care about the economy. I think globally we understand. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned about what's in my pocketbook. But one of the things we're actually trying to to look into further and this, I think, could could have some bearing on how working class candidates uh, try to build support or how Democratic candidates try to build support among uh, these groups where we're, where Democrats are slipping is what what kind of policies does that entail? You know, is that, you know, certainly they ask about concern over inflation, but what's is that, uh, you know, supportive of raising a minimum wage? Is that corporate tax rates? You know, sort of what is that? Uh, uh, what does that mean? So I think that's I think that's one way of sort of unpacking and think about it. I, I am curious also, like, it seems, you know, every so often we got, we, we have polling, like the New York Times polling that comes out. And then there's kind of like a flurry of attention around this, this ongoing problem of the Democrats losing their working class base. And uh, then there's like another flurry of op-eds, usually from just other mainstream democratic strategists and commentators who like mm -hmm. offer some solutions of how to deal with it. But, um, you know, overall, and I think that this is something that you've talked about before, there seem to be like very few signs that the party is interested in seriously addressing this problem of class dealignment. I mean, I feel like every couple of weeks, Bernie Sanders writes an op-ed begging the Democratic Party to like pay attention to bread and butter issues and to get back on track. But other than that, you know, I don't know. Again, it like seems very um, it seems very like flash in the pan, I guess, that the Democratic Party would actually start paying attention. Um, but, you know, the larger question for you is like even beyond kind of this lack of political will, is there anything that the Democrats can do at this point to sort of reverse this process? I mean, it's, I, I just ask because the latest polling just seems so dire. Like, I wonder if you think that class dealignment is like a runaway train at this point. I mean, I, I sort of wish I had a, a more optimistic answer. I think I kind of, I'm a little bit on your side here. It's it's pretty it's pretty bleak. And I think the other part of it is, you know, the the takeaway that really stood out is this, you know, declining support and the sort of proof against the demographics as destiny thesis, which Democrats have been, you know, trumpeting for a long time. Um, but I think in some ways, like, I wonder what headlines you were looking at. And maybe that's where we're where we're sitting. I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. right now and have been, you know, working on, on the Hill for for this year and sort of getting up close there. But the working class, you know, decline and slip has not been, I think, what the main uh, narrative about this kind of uh, mm. shift has been. So I guess that there was maybe some more recognition. Uh, and certainly I think they know, I think Democrats uh, and these strategists and campaign um, operatives, they know that this is what's happening, but it's not mm -hmm. the main narrative that they're talking about. In terms of what, I mean, I think we have to keep uh, keep trying. And that's, you know, I think the little piece of what we're trying to do with Center for Working Class Politics is try to, you know, if you could, um, if you could get some candidates to to run a different way, Mm -hmm. um, and to try to focus more on these bread and butter issues. I think the other problem is that the, you know, they just don't have anything to, to run on. I think the infrastructure bill was one thing, but part of the, you know, in my opinion, uh, sort of flawed approach is, well, you know, we can maybe capitalize on anger over abortion, anger, you know, and, and people being riled up about, you know, the January 6th hearings, um, and concerned about really, I think, catastrophic gun violence. But I don't know that that's gonna, carry them all the way through November. And especially if you look at this poll and just 
the absolutely um, overwhelming indication that we're, that people are are really concerned about the economy and then issues like inflation um, are are also really present. So I that's not very <laughs> optimistic. Um, I think yeah, I think it's I think it's a pretty and again I would point to this isn't this isn't new. That's the mm-hmm. other part of this is that this has been decades uh, that this shift has been taking place. And, you know, my, you mentioned, I, I look a lot in my research at the kind of coalition and policies that were championed in, in the 1930s and 40s on the New Deal. Our policy landscape doesn't look like that. And, you know, right. part of that, they say, well, we don't have the support and we can't get Mansion on board. Um, but part of it, I think that there's not a commitment that that's, um, that's the kind of direction the party should head in. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, I I feel like I have to say that we on the left or even just like progressives in general, um, there's there's not a lot that we can do at this point to shift the trajectory or the kind of uh, policy platform of the Democratic Party. Um, However, you know, there's there's we can always do a little bit of something. Right. And so (laughs) I guess the like final question for you is, do you feel like this new polling changes how we should think about, uh, you know, progressive and or left messaging? Because that's kind of like the other piece of your research with Center for Working class politics. And maybe another way of asking the question is like, do you feel like this new polling indicates that the Democratic brand has been has has turned sort of like irredeemably toxic among working class voters? Mm. Because something that I want to go, I I, I want to bring up about, you know, the last uh Center for Working Class uh uh politics study is that you guys found that um Democratic and Democratic leaning primary voters aren't actually all that turned off by like just the idea of Democrats. Yeah. Um, but, you know, are things heading in that direction? Um, no, I, I, I was exactly thinking uh, of that. I'm glad that you brought that up. That really was something that we were a little surprised to find that um, even among even among some independents, we, the Democratic label wasn't as uh, wasn't as uh, harmful as we might have expected it to be. That wasn't a, necessarily a turnoff to voters. But it also I, this I, it reminded me of something I wanted to say in, in response to your question about the the difference between the sort of the cultural and the bread and butter issues. I thought one of the other interesting pieces of the poll was pointing to, I think it was um, uh, Hispanic voters who prioritize the economy uh, as their primary issue, but also were supportive of abortion rights. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that the message is you can't, you know, you can't embrace um, some of these, you know, the cultural issues. I think, you know, right what's happening right now with the votes on the resolution around um, same-sex marriage in Congress and, you know, Republicans, I think, especially those who are in highly contested elections are sort of, uh, are are swinging uh, more in support of that. I think that's kind of uh, an indication that certainly things can change. And, you know, I'll say, again, one of the things we found um, in uh, in the first survey that we did was having racial justice on on, on a platform and um, civil rights wasn't uh, similarly to the democratic label was actually not uh, at all hurting uh, was not at all hurting the candidate profiles that we were sort of testing and, and looking at in this somewhat strange um, vacuum of, of of survey and experimental research right. um, so so yeah I think that there are uh, and that's one of the things we want to look at moving forward is is that kind of um, sort of the the difference between those uh, those types of support. So if if the Center for Working Class Politics was able to advise all the Democratic candidates who were running in the midterms <laughs> this year, what would you tell them? What oh. how should they? Obviously, you know, as we've said many times on the show, like messaging isn't everything, but yeah. it is like sort of the one piece that politicians and political campaigns can control. Uh, so it yeah. you know. 
given everything that's going on now and this new polling that we have, like what should Democratic candidates be doing? Well, I think one thing to think about, and you, I know you had um, Samir Santi on a couple of weeks ago to talk about inflation is provide a different answer to what the right is saying on some of these economic, you know, these like really serious issues, explain inflation in a way that's not, well, Biden pumped billions of dollars of aid. Like, let's just, let's try to sort of combat that and provide a different explanation for the economic situation, which then can lend itself to support for, I think, policies that are going to ultimately, you know, benefit working people much more than what the right's offering. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I think that's, that's one example um, and, you know, not shying away from, I mean, I also think keep an eye on, uh, yeah, I think that Roe and January 6th are really, uh, you know, sort of hot in the media right now. We don't know what that landscape's going to look like in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, so not forgetting, I think that's, you know, the economy is, is really important to people. And so let's keep that really a part of the narrative, uh, the narrative as well. The problem right. is they don't have too much to, to speak to on that, which is the real challenge. But ultimately, they're what they um, stand for is still better than what the right is is offering. Yeah. All right, Katie Rader, again, thank you so much. It was great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks so much. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in July and get your first month free. This month's selections are Red Valkyries, Feminist Lessons from Five Revolutionary Women by Kristen Godsey, a history of five prominent socialist women active in the 19th and 20th centuries in Eastern Europe. Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation by Paris Marx, an expose of the problems with Silicon Valley's visions of the future. Against Borders, The Case for Abolition by Gracie May Bradley and Luke de Nerona, a manifesto for why we need to get rid of borders. And The Poverty of Ethics by Anat Matar, an analysis of why the left should reclaim ethics and morality for itself. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Hey everyone, my name is Samir Santi and I teach at the City University of New York School of Labor and Urban Studies. I'm really happy to be joined today by Sam Gindin, who for decades has been one of the great organizers and intellectuals in the North American labor movement. Sam served for many years as research director of the Canadian Auto Workers, and since his retirement, he's been a prolific writer and analyst of all kinds of issues bearing on labor and working class politics, from the world of high finance to the nuts and bolts of workplace organizing and union strategy. Together with the late great Leo Panich, Sam is the author of The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire, and a number of other books and articles that are must-reads. Uh, there really are few people I've learned more from uh, than Sam over the years, so it's a joy to be doing this. Um, Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great introduction. <laughs> embarrassing, oh. introdu- embarrassing introduction, but thanks. Well, there's too much to too much to to praise. Um, well, among the the wealth of things you've written, you've recently done a new piece in Jacobin called "The First Principle of Union Organizing: Spontaneity Isn't Enough," which um, I believe a link you can find in the show description. And the article focuses on something a lot of people in the labor movement and the left more broadly have been thinking about lately, which is the really exciting burst of union organizing. 
that's taken place across the U.S. over the last several months. As most people watching surely know, workers have recently won high-profile victories at at large, well-known companies like Amazon and Starbucks, REI, some others. And that's only to mention the campaigns that have gotten a lot of press. According to the National Labor Relations Board, which is the federal agency that oversees union organizing in the private sector, through the first half of this year, there was a 57% increase in the number of petitions filed to hold union elections as compared to the same period in 2021. Of course, not all that's going to lead to unions. Um, and in any case, it still isn't clear whether this surge of activity is going to make much of a dent in the overall rate of union membership, which in the private sector is hovering around 6% as compared to some 30 or more percent in the mid 20th century. But there's still something exciting and important going on. And for that reason, a lot of people are asking why this increase in union organizing is happening right now, whether it's likely to continue and spread whether there are historical parallels to what we're witnessing and, and so on. And, and it's these questions that, Sam, you address in your article. Uh, one explanation that has been going around has focused largely on the fact that, at least in certain cases, like the Staten Island, or Staten Island Amazon warehouse, there wasn't any established institutional union involvement. Um, the organizing effort came from below, from workers who figured out what they were doing as they went along. And to some observers, the takeaway from this is that we're witnessing a spontaneous working class insurgency. And the best thing unions can do is get out of the way and let the momentum of this thing spread on its own. You're, you're quite critical of that perspective in your article, Sam. So could you maybe start by explaining you know, what you consider to be the main problems with it? Yeah, well, it's, it, it's obviously... Uh really exciting to see a degree of spontaneity. That's not the issue. There's always a degree of spontaneity in terms of uh, resistance and uh, protests in workplaces. The question, the hard question is sustaining it. If it was just a question of spontaneity, we wouldn't just be talking about an example at Staten Island or an example in Starbucks. It would be happening everywhere because there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of workplaces where there is no union. And it, nothing happened spontaneously. Wish it were so. Uh, so th- the point is that spontaneity is, it's an action. It's something that people do. It comes and goes. The trick is to sustain it. How do you sustain it? And that's true even in the Staten Island example. For one thing, there was a certain amount of uh, organizing, not just spontaneity. Uh, but the other thing is that the the rest of the the uh, conflict at Amazon is going to get more difficult. It's one thing to get people to say, "I'll uh, uh, in a secret ballot, I'll support the union." It's another thing to say, "I'm ready to go on strike to win recognition." That's much more riskier. So, so the question is uh, not just how do we wait for something to happen, but how do we really prepare for it? How do how do we really acknowledge the imbalance of power in the workplace? And ask, how do we build a counterpower? And to do that, you have to think about how you make a collectivity of workers, how you develop their understandings, their skills, how you plug in uh, experiences from elsewhere, how you kind of create the kind of structures that give workers some confidence that they can win. How do you expand it to all kinds of workers who aren't reacting spontaneously? How do you deepen this for the deeper fight that you're getting into? So that requires structures. It requires strategies. It requires planning. uh, It requires training. And uh, my concern is that if we let the excitement of spontaneity 
just say, well, that's our strategy, we're going to be in real trouble. And that's my concern. Uh, we've got to figure out how do you nurture that spontaneity? How, you ex- how do you expand it and, and develop it? And what frightened me about the drift to spontaneity is that we, start, we stop thinking about how difficult this really is, what we really are up against and what it'll take. Thanks for that, Sam. That's um, very clear and helpful. Um, and I just want to follow up on this, this concept that you introduce in, in the article, which you call structure-based organizing. And you describe it as, and I'm quoting here, a process for developing the sustained collective power to achieve goals. And one example of a goal, perhaps, as you as you mentioned in your in your previous remark, is is winning a contract. So, as many you know, many observers may not or listeners may not know, but in the U.S., when a union is is won, is certified, which it's still at Amazon, still has not even been certified because Amazon is litigating the election itself. But once the union certified, the employer is under no obligation to to really bargain and let alone settle a contract. So it's a long ways from winning a union election to getting a contract. And and as you describe in the in the piece, this is the kind of thing winning and sustaining a campaign through this long process requires a durable organization that can only be achieved through what you, again what you characterize as structure-based organizing. So can you talk a little bit more about what structured structure-based organizing is in your mind, what it looks like, what some of the the the, the nuts and bolts of it are? Yeah. Okay. I, I should point out at first that a lot of this is very uh, heavily influenced by Jane McAlevey and the work that she's done, both theoretically and conceptually, but also especially her practice. Uh, structure-based organizing isn't a model that you just bring in and implement. It has certain principles, which I'll speak to in a second. But, uh, you know, it's a question of principles and values. And then it's a question of how do you apply that in very different circumstances? So the kind of principles that are important is that uh, you have to reach the majority of the workplace. You cannot sneak this through with a small minority of workers. Uh, for example, winning the vote with 30% is just not enough because you're going to be confronting a much deeper or more difficult issue. So you have to have the numbers. You have to have people inoculated against the risks that they're taking. They have to understand them honestly because the numbers aren't enough, because a lot of people will uh, fade as they see what they're up against, unless you've done that kind of work. You need organic leaders, because you cannot just lead this from the top or from staff. You have to find workers, not necessarily who are elected to union positions, but that uh, other workers trust, and they become facilitators. It's not just that you're creating a cadre, a Leninist cadre. You're creating people who can facilitate the confidence and development of other workers. And then you have to do training and you have to constantly test yourself because you have to know whether you're winning. It's not good enough to say that we got a lot of people who are interested in getting a vote. That doesn't tell you much about whether they really want a union. So you're constantly testing things and what's your strength uh, and you're escalating it to see how far you can go and whether you can build towards uh, a strike. You have to map, you have to know what you're up against. So all these are the kinds of structural things you have to organize, committees and uh, mass involvement. Uh, and of course, in the process of this, it depends on very specific things. And a lot of creativity is crucial. I mean, spontaneity does matter. It's not like it doesn't matter. And it isn't as if once you get moving and people have some confidence, uh, what happens then is others develop confidence. So, so spontaneity and 
momentum are important, but you need structure so that you're prepared for this and this crucial point of sustaining it, which I would add, it isn't even just to get in a contract. We've had unions for a long time who get contracts and the contracts haven't been that great. So it's also a question, well, what do you do after you have a contract? It's this question of building. Right, right. And so the the, the distinction between spontaneity and structure is maybe one that need not be forced. Um, and I think that's a helpful clarification. You know, in this sort of, in this discussion, a historical example that comes up a lot is the CIO in the 1930s, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Maybe to start, there are folks who don't know or aren't familiar with the CIO. So could you maybe talk a little bit about what the CIO is and what you see as the the real lessons of the CIO experience as it pertains to what you're talking about right now? Yeah, I, I should say, first of all, Samir, this, the point that you ended with before about uh, spontaneity and uh, organizing not being polar opposites, which is true, but they are distinct. I, I do want to say that uh, spontaneity is usually about acting and doing something. And so it's kind of moment, uh, momentarily, whereas organizing is trying to build a way of uh, sustaining things over a period of time and developing it. So it can absorb uh, spontaneity. It can nurture it and help mm-hmm. it, but they shouldn't just be seen as too they are distinct. Right. And we should appreciate that. Uh, the question that you're raising is very important because uh, one of the questions about organizing is to learn from the past. You know, workers' experience is partial. You get into a workplace and you suddenly have problems and what do you do? So learning from the past is very important. That's actually part of organizing is to bring in lessons from the past. But then it's a question of what are the lessons? So what you raised about the CIO is that uh, in the 30s, uh, unions, the dominant unions were craft unions. They were looking at skilled workers. They didn't have much respect for the need to organize unskilled workers. Unskilled workers were too replaceable. They generally were immigrant workers, often uh, blue collar immigrant workers who uh, didn't even speak the same language. And the, the CIO uh, emerged out of the need to have a labor central that was interested in organizing the whole workforce, that was interested in breaking down the barriers between skilled and unskilled workers. And uh, so the CIO emerges. So I guess one of the first things is when you look at the 30s, of course, you see a lot of spontaneity. Once there's excitement and things happening, you see all kinds of workers either doing things or asking organizers to come in. That's that's part of, because it's always affected by the climate. My experience in the 60s was that, and this is in Canada, that the civil rights movement in the States uh, was very influential. And the anti-war movement in the States was very influential on Canadian workers. Hmm. Even if it wasn't ideologically that clear, they had a sense that people are fighting back, they're resisting, and it mattered very much. That happened in the 30s. So this you know, there's two really important things against the argument of spontaneity. One is that you had the CIO. You actually had a new alternative labor central with organizers and staff and resources who would go in to help. So that was absolutely crucial. It wasn't spontaneous. It meant that, uh, you know, the spontaneity had something to plug into and something to reinforce it. The second thing is you had a communist party. And, you know, if you talk about or being organized, the communist, you know, what defined the communist party, which is, was its degree of being organized, its degree of understanding that it's fighting an enemy, you know, not just the power 
of capital, but also the power of the state. And you had to be organized. Otherwise, you were going and you had to think in terms of class solidarity. Uh, otherwise, you'd be divided between skilled workers and unskilled. You had to find a way of bringing this together. So there was very much of uh, and everything I think I've said about uh, structured organizing comes out of the CIO. You can go back and find, you know, their one page leaflets of the 10 basic principles. And that's where you find them. So it was very much about uh, organizing structures and in that context, spontaneity can, can uh, reinforce that and help. I'll give one example from Canada. Auto workers in Canada, when the CIO merged, uh, couldn't actually get material benefit from the CIO because they were just too wrapped up in their own battles. They're, you know, they were overworked already, didn't have the resources and didn't have the organizers to send. But Canadians were inspired by the example. And that's an example of momentum mattering. They saw this happening. They said, hey, this can happen here, too. But even then, when they saw this can matter here, uh, it didn't actually matter. It meant there was a lot of potential, but it didn't actually matter until there were people who were either communists or had other experiences. In Oshawa, one of the experiences was that there was a, Win a general strike in Winnipeg in 1919. Uh, and out of that general strike, a lot of workers were uh, blacklisted and they moved to Ontario. Turns out that in the 30s, all of a sudden they reemerge and they're experienced organizers. So even when there's some momentum to really make it happen and, uh, and, and to win, it required that kind of uh, organizing. Right, right. Well, and this, this kind of organizing, I mean, you've made a compelling case for, for why it's necessary. And I guess the question then becomes, why isn't it happening more? And, and a point you make in the piece and a, and a point you've made for years is that it's been a very long time since this kind of structure-based organizing has been done on a large scale. The CIO is one example of that, perhaps more in the 60s, but it's been quite a while. And, and one of the reasons this is the case, you've argued, is, is that unions have been unwilling or unable to undertake that kind of organizing program. So, so what would it take to really do this kind of thing on a national level? What would it take within the labor movement, outside of the labor movement, on the left more broadly? Okay. Well, it's a great question. I might take a little bit longer to answer it. I, I think we have to go back to the post-war period in the 50s and 60s when labor was militant. And a lot of the left looks to that period and dreams about it happening again. The trouble was that at that moment of militancy, uh, unions were relatively comfortable with militancy itself and not thinking about larger political questions or larger changes in the trade union movement. And the militancy of workers created a problem for capital. And uh, it took a decade for capital to figure out how to deal with it. Went through everything I won't get into. But what they eventually decided is you just had to break the back of workers by uh, letting unemployment rise. And uh, th there was a cover, I think it was Time Magazine, might have been Newsweek, that said that uh, there wasn't enough room on the sidewalks for picket lines and for unemployment lines. It was their way of saying that you had to choose between militancy and, uh, and being unemployed. And it was a real thing. It really affected workers. It exhausted them. It made them think like, well, at least maybe I can hang on to the victories of the past. And the challenge was to raise the political questions. How do we get some control over investment? How do we get some control? How do we democratize industry? 
So that's kind of a background. And the problem was that uh, the establishment had to break labor to restore profits, to maintain, you know, to break inflation, to protect the dollar in the United States. Uh, and they did that. Labor was broken. And in that process, uh, uh, we're still living with that. Because what it meant was that capital was responding differently. You know, after the war, it was kind of accepting the need for some legitimacy. Unions were militant. We had to accommodate. But now they decided to break labor. That was the key to neoliberalism. And in breaking labor, uh, labor didn't get what was going on. They kept thinking, this is temporary. Things will change. Okay, now let me get really to your question now. So we have these decades of labor being uh, defeated, weakened without a recognition that you had to change your response to these new times. These are really new times. And the left was also broken. We don't talk about that as much. But with this came uh, the, the marginalization of the left, really. So you get this into the present moment. And, you know, workers, workers will always find ways of surviving. But surviving can take individual forms. I'll go into debt. I'll work through my vacation. Uh, my spouse will work full-time instead of part-time. So workers felt they developed individual responses. Well, by the year 2000, you start running out of this. You don't, you know, even if your kids are working while they're going to school, you're starting to run out of just working more time. The debt loads are increasing. Uh, and then you have the financial crisis. So you, you're really confronted with this accumulation of frustrations that nobody has dealt with. You know, not just the right or the corporations, the unions themselves haven't dealt with. And it's this real challenge of how do we deal with it? So one thing that is clear is that there's been, you know, unions are institutions and there are bureaucratic tendencies in it. And that has to be changed. If you're talking about implementing a model that involves mass participation, instead of just seeing unions as you pay your dues and it's an insurance policy, and you'll get something for it. If you're going to have organic leaders, you're going to spread leaders, the number of leaders. If you realize you're going to really have to take on the corporations, you have to be prepared to strike more. You have to educate your members. Well, once you start thinking about all of these things, uh, you begin to see that, well, this requires a different union. And the existing establishment in unions is going to be nervous about it. It's going to be seen as a threat. Their life had gotten comfortable saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's globalization. It's the right. It's conservatives. Uh, it's financialization. All of a sudden, the question is, okay, that's all there, but what are we going to do about it? And so there's this resistance from changing things. And I'm very skeptical about it changing simply from uh, workers figuring it out and getting active. There's an awful lot of pressures on workers to survive, to work part-time. They don't have time because now both partners are working. It's very hard, except, you know, these rare moments and it happens. That's why I see a lot of it among young people who don't have other responsibilities. But it's hard to imagine workers spontaneously just responding in a sustained way, even against their union. Now we're not just talking about the companies. Now we're talking about changing their union. And at the top of the house, uh, a lot of the labor leaders haven't had that experience of the past. There hasn't been a left that's played that role. Uh, there are individual socialists around, but they're around as individuals. And as I said before, there's a certain comfort with it and therefore a certain resistance. So it's not, so it seems to me that the only way that this can change is it has to change from below, but below can't change unless rank and file workers are linked to something larger to socialists who have a foot in the labor movement and a foot outside. So they're grounded, but they're also bringing something else to it, as happened in the 30s. 
they're bringing an analysis, which, you know, the leadership can say our research department has done this and there's nothing to do. Well, workers need some alternative research. Uh, they need a sense of class. And I don't mean this just ideologically. I mean that if you're going to organize something like Amazon, you actually have to contemplate the idea that maybe this needs a crusade that includes all the unions. It's not a competition amongst unions who to get this. Uh, and, you know, once you start thinking that way, then class becomes practical. It's about building the working class. So we're all better off, not just about, you know, our own sector and our own members. Uh, and it's also about if you really want to fight and the problem has gotten bigger, you have to understand who your enemy is. And your enemy isn't just the boss. It's the system and the way it works. And now if it's the system, we got to start talking, learning about capitalism in our workplaces. How does it work? What are its weaknesses? So all those things require some kind of an organized left. And so this question of spontaneity actually gets back to that. You know, it's thrilling to see workers fighting back. It's been an awfully long time. And it's great to see. And there really is potential. But the question is, can we build on that potential? We always have to remember that the corporations and the state helping them are always going to respond. If we start doing something and winning, they're going to step it up. They'll change the laws. They'll change how they're administered. They'll break strikes. So we have to be prepared. So that means we have to think about building a left. And that's a hard thing to do because we haven't had it for a long time. But we do have to start thinking of mechanisms for building a left and what kind of campaigns we need that'll, uh, you know, I mean, the openings are there. You know, people are frustrated about healthcare. People are frustrated, you know, there's the environment. And each of these questions that you raise pose challenges to the system and to capital, but they have to be organized so that people don't just get cynical about it. One of the things that I think has happened in the States is that, uh, we lived through a period of protest. When I say protest, it's, it's closer to spontaneity, but it does require some organizing. And then people discovered that protest isn't enough. You have to address the state and you have to address organization. And so they started to move to politics. But even, and you saw that with Syriza and with Corbyn and with Sanders and in Spain, Podemos. But even when they did that, it was as if they were looking for shortcuts. You know, we'll elect Sanders and we'll win. So when Sanders loses, you're nowhere again. Or, or when Corbyn gets kicked out, you're nowhere again. We have to get back to the fact that the critical question is how do you build the working class, very broadly defined, into a coherent social force with the capacities to change society? Now, that is a big question that can't happen spont spontaneously. It's a hard question even when you say we need to get organized. But it means thinking about how you start moving to that kind of an organized working class. And it means that what you want primarily from a political party uh, isn't just to have radical policies, but to be always concerned with how do we develop the capacities of the working class? How do we accept that, you know, workers aren't spontaneously revolutionary, but they change. How do we develop them and how do we link them and how do we therefore? Yeah. And that's the role of a party to do that. And then express that against the state in terms of policies. But unless you've built that base, you can't do it. I, I would also make the point that uh, even unions that want to organize and say we're going to really make a commitment to organize are often going to be stymied by their own members democratically saying, well, wait a second, you're supposed to represent us and we're not getting very much. How come you're doing all of this? So you have to start by explaining it to your members. 
Why are you doing this? And, you know, that's where class comes in. You have to explain this. So, so I mean, this is the big challenge that we're facing, and it's, it's, it's an enormous challenge. Well, Sam, I, I think often, you know, it can be, it can, putting it in big terms like that can be uh, scary, but it's also the first step to clearly understanding what it is that we've got to do um, and, and, and to underscore the patience that we got to have to do it. As always, Sam, bringing us from the micro to the macro and back in a really, really, really terrifying way. Please, yeah, I, jump I, back I, in, please. Yeah, no, no, I, th- I just think your, your last point is really important, though. My wife, often when I said I was going out to speak, she would ask me, who are you going to depress today? <laughs> and my response to it is very much what you were get, getting at. Like the most depressing thing to me is when we have illusions about what we face and how we're going to win. That's depressing to me because I know we're going to lose. Uh, you know, once we start getting activists, socialists, workers to start honestly confronting what we face and to see that, look, if we just keep going this way, it's not like we're going through a rough patch and it's going to get better. It's going to get worse. And we see that. I mean, that's the experience of it constantly getting worse. And unless we recognize that and say, look, this is, this is about our kids as well as ourselves. This is about the long term. This is part of building, you know, doing something, believing that humanity can do a lot more than have capitalism. And it's going to require patience and commitment and addressing a lot of hard questions that we haven't solved, like finding the time to do all of this stuff. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, the discussion. Yeah, no, thank you, Sam. And it is indeed a multi-generational struggle and, and, and sustaining a multi-generational struggle requires organization and it's not going to happen in Absolutely. first. So I think that ties it together very well. Well, Sam, Gindin, thanks again. It's been a pleasure talking um, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Great. And nice to see you again, Samir. Okay, we are now here with Jeff Goodwin. He is a professor of sociology at NYU and a leading scholar on social movements. His latest piece in Catalyst, which I will be talking to him about today, is Black Reconstruction as Class War. Jeff, good to see you. Thanks for having me. So let's just dive right into your Catalyst piece. It is, of course, on uh, the great W.E.B. Du Bois. And um, I just want to start by sort of mentioning that, you know, as you point out in the piece, I think a lot of people and even people on the left will often downplay or even sometimes outright dismiss uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' Marxism, right? And that's kind of the central focus of your piece. And I want to dive into the specifics of reconstruction, uh, of Black reconstruction in a minute. But first, I want to ask you, like, why do you think it's so important to understand and kind of foreground Du Bois as a Marxist and not just simply as like an anti-racist or an intersectionalist? Um, And then maybe, you know, adding on to that, how did he become a Marxist? (laughs) Uh, Right. Well, um, you know, the truth is important. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm often frustrated when I uh, read accounts of Du Bois, which uh, somehow managed to overlook the fact that he became a Marxist. Um, and you really can't uh, understand, I think, his, uh, uh, his work after the mid-1930s without appreciating the fact that he did uh, become a Marxist uh, during the Depression and uh, later uh, became a kind of fellow traveler of the Communist Party as well. So these affiliations uh, and theoretical commitments are important. 
for understanding the man and his uh, and his writings, uh, beginning with uh, Black Reconstruction. Um, I mean, the story of how he became a Marxist is is quite interesting. Uh, he had been. Uh, you know, he had been interested uh, in socialism for, for many years, and there's some essays in uh, a 1920 book called Dark Water, which were very uh, positive towards socialism and basically envis- envisioned a socialist future. Uh, he was also captivated by the Russian Revolution, and in 1926, he had an opportunity to travel to the Soviet Union, and uh, by all accounts, uh, that uh, trip had a huge effect on Du Bois. Uh, He was quite impressed by what was going on in uh, the Soviet Union. This was just some months uh, before Stalin uh, came to power, it should be said. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, and it was around that time, I think, that Du Bois kind of uh, decided to learn more about Marxism. Um, and although that didn't really happen until the until the early 1930s. And I think one of the uh, uh, motivations for Du Bois to study Marxism uh, for the really for the first time uh, in the early 1930s, well, there, there are a number of things going on. Obviously, the Depression, so mm-hmm. the biggest uh, crisis of capitalism ever uh, w- was going on. And um, uh, But more than that, there was a challenge within uh, Du Bois's own organization, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, an organization which he helped found and whose journal called The Crisis uh, he had edited for going back to 1910. And, uh, but within that organization, there arose a, a group of uh, people called the Young Turks, uh, who were basically a Marxist in orientation, uh, certainly sympathetic to Marxism. They were critical of the NAACP for lacking uh, an economic program. And more than that, they, they were all more or less committed to this idea that um, racism in the United States, racial oppression in the United States, uh, really couldn't be challenged um, forcefully except by an interracial, a strong interracial labor movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, and they really wanted to push the NAACP in this, in this direction. And... Um, so I think Du Bois uh, was uh, was challenged by that, and so he began reading. He asked some of these people, uh, especially an economist by the name of Abram Harris, to help him uh, learn about Marxism, to recommend some things he might read. Uh, and so at the age of 65, <laughs> Du Bois is not a young man at this point any longer. Uh, at the age of 65, he begins reading Marx, Engels, Lenin quite uh, carefully. Um, and um, the result uh, is that this uh, book he's working on at the time in which he finishes up a few years later, Black Reconstruction in America, it's really his first uh, Marxist uh, book, 
uh, mm-hmm. his first Marxist analysis and you know, strongly reflects his discovery of Marxist ideas and concepts, uh, mm-hmm. you know, especially class analysis and the importance of class struggle in history. Yeah, so so let's turn now to Black Reconstruction. Um, obviously, that is sort of the focus of your piece for Catalyst. Uh, you point out that uh, uh, Du Bois writes that he considered Reconstruction, quote, a dictatorship of labor. Uh, he also writes that he uh, considers Reconstruction an extraordinary experiment of Marxism that preceded the Soviet Union. So that seems like a pretty clear indication that he's sort of operating from a Marxist framework here. Um, but, but maybe talk a little bit about um, why he viewed Reconstruction in those terms. And then following that, that, how does race figure into all of this? Because obviously the title of the book is Black Reconstruction, not, you know, Marxist Reconstruction or, or Working Class Reconstruction. <clears throat> um, so, so yeah, talk a little bit about that. Hey, sure. Um, I mean, one thing I should say by way of pref- preface is that, you know, Black Reconstruction is, as I argue, is, um, is really a study of revolution and counter-revolution mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, it is. Uh, it does provide a history and a kind of state-by-state analysis of uh, the Reconstruction governments uh, of uh, of the South. Uh, but that's set within this broader framework of uh, uh, of revolution, of a workers' revolution by the slave workers of the South, as he calls them. Uh, that's what really brings about these. Uh, labor governments in the in the south that's really what he's referring to when he calls reconstruction an extraordinary marxist experiment it's Mm -hmm. coming to the power of these republican governments state governments which he views as labor governments um a bit problematically we can talk more about that but and then the book concludes by talking about the counter-revolution against these uh, labor governments or dictatorships of labor as he calls them uh, which uh, of course stripped African Americans of their civil and political rights and ushered in eventually ushered in the Jim Crow era so um, it's important to it's almost never said, but, you know, I, I really do think it's important to understand that this is a study of revolution and, mm-hmm. and counter-revolution. Now, uh, he was actually going to use, he was going about to call the Republican governments, the, these labor governments in the South, dictatorships of the proletariat, <laughs> uh, using the Marxist concept. But uh, some of the Marxists that he was in, contact with, in dialogue with, um, in the run-up to of completing the book, uh, and who had read the manuscript, uh, told him, you know, no, that's, that's really not right. That's not, uh, those governments were really not dictatorships of the proletariat, you know, led by organized working classes, demanding, you know, common ownership uh, of the you know, means of production. Um, and Du Bois accepted this um, above all, I think, because, yeah, it's true that the the workers who made the this revolution, the slave workers, um, as well as poor whites, uh, were actually not demanding uh, common ownership of the means of production. Mm-hmm. They were demanding individual ownership of land, and they wanted the main demand of the 
uh, emancipated, enslaved uh, workers was for the plantations to be broken up and the land uh, distributed to to individual families, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That never happened, actually. That was uh, the signal failure of... uh, uh, of uh, Reconstruction, and Du Bois suggested that that failure led straight away to the uh, what he calls the counter-revolution of property, which mm-hmm. overthrew Reconstruction. But he did call these state governments, led by Republicans, uh, backed by uh, working class and poor blacks and whites in some states. Uh, he did call them dictatorships of labor, not dictatorships of the proletariat, but uh, he did see them basically as labor governments. And I mentioned that's a little bit problematic because most of the politicians who uh, indeed represented a primarily working class base, uh, they themselves weren't Excuse me. They themselves were not a working class people. Mm-hmm. They were tended to be petty bourgeois uh, farmers, in some cases merchants, artisans, and so forth. And um, and they really did not, um, as Du Bois points out, they really did not have much of an economic program themselves, and they did not, by and large, support the redistribution of land to the formerly enslaved. And so it's a bit of a stretch to call these Republican governments um, dictatorships of labor or to see them as labor governments. Uh, uh, they were you know, led by petty bourgeois uh, politicians uh, uh, who they kind of indifferently represented the interests of, uh, of their base, of their working class base. Mm-hmm. So I, I now want to turn to this question of race, uh, which I had brought up before. And maybe the way to get into that is, um, you know, we, we, we should say that one of the most famous lines, if not the most famous line from Black Reconstruction, uh, is probably the one that concerns uh, white workers' racism, right? And the so-called, uh, quote, psychological wage that they earn. Um, now, as you point out in the piece, that concept of the so-called wages of whiteness has, like, kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, so, so maybe talk a little bit about... Um, well, first, first, uh, what did Du Bois actually think about uh, white workers' commitment to this idea of racial superiority, and how how did that uh, influence recon- the Reconstruction period? Sure. Of course, the main thing that I would want to stress is that uh, for Du Bois, uh, racism, you know, wasn't just one thing, mm-hmm. but it was rooted in the material interests of different classes, and accordingly it took on different forms for different classes. And certainly the <laughs> the racism that mattered most uh, during this period was the racism of the um, of the elites, right? Yes. The racism of the planter class in particular. And um, both the old slave-owning uh, aristocracy, but also the planter elite that uh, uh, survived the Civil War. Um, and Du Bois argues that their racism was basically a legitimating ide- ideology. Mm-hmm. He doesn't use that phrase, but he basically saw it as their way of legitimate, excuse me, legitimizing um, uh, their, their, their rule and exploitation 
of uh, enslaved people. Um, so it had an economic material foundation. Um, the main motive of slavery, of course, was, uh, um, you know, to take advantage of a cheap labor force uh, to exploit it and to get wealthy. Uh, and, um, and Du Bois said that these uh, exploiters, this ruling class, uh, found, uh, invented, and proved uh, racism as a way of, uh, again, legitimizing its uh, exploitation. And, and that was also the case after, uh, after the uh, Civil War, during the Jim Crow era, during the era of sharecropping and so forth, debt peonage, the, the racism, the dominant racism was really um, economically motivated. Now, uh, of course, there was, uh, however, as you say, uh, racism among uh, white workers. And the boys uh, interpreted this as a, as a response to the fears of white workers that uh, slaves, or uh, more specifically, newly emancipated slaves, would um, compete for them for jobs, and that mm -hmm. those individuals would be willing to work for less, uh, and that they would be replaced by these uh, former, uh, former enslaved people. And so it was really the competition in the labor market uh, an idea that, again, which uh, Du Bois kind of took from Abram Harris, who I mentioned earlier. He wrote a book called The Black Worker, which uh, had a big influence on Du Bois. And so the idea was that uh, working class racism, above all, was rooted in this fear of unemployment, this fear that um, uh, black workers would be willing to work for less and they would be uh, used to take their jobs and so forth. So, uh, so it was a different kind of racism with a different kind of motivation than, than that of the uh, ruling class. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, what's interesting about uh, this, this line about the white workers psychological wage is that it kind of took on a life of its own, right? It became yeah. like sort of like it's uh, uh, its own field, like like whiteness studies, right? The wages of yeah. whiteness. Yeah. Um, what do you think popular conceptions of that line get wrong? And like, help us set <clears throat> the record straight. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Uh, du Bois talks about this psychological wage. Um, he doesn't actually use the concept of whiteness. Uh, it's kind of implicit. Mm -hmm. But you have to realize we're talking about a few paragraphs uh, that stretch across a couple pages of a 700-page book. This is not a central idea in, in the book. Uh, and it's not a very well-developed idea. And in my own opinion, it's not a very good idea. Mm -hmm. But uh, basically, the idea is that White workers, uh, in addition to their material wage, in addition to the pay they received, which was not very much uh, at all, but in addition to that, they received, unlike their, uh, unlike African American workers, a, an additional psychological wage. Well, what was this? Well, if you read Du Bois, he's basically saying, you know, whites had rights civil and political rights. 
And that was what they had, which black workers did not. He's clearly referring here to the post-Reconstruction era when uh, African-Americans have been, again, stripped of civil and political rights. And, um, but, but whites retain those rights. They also retain, they also had some status, at least among other whites. Um, but it's a little strange calling these, uh, this a psychological wage because mm-hmm. these were real things, right? It wasn't just, they weren't just in the minds of the uh, white workers. Presumably mm-hmm. what Du Bois is, wants to say is that having these rights and this status, which black workers lacked, had a psychological effect on workers. Uh, it made them feel superior. Um, now, the question, though, is, you know, how, what do we, you know, how did white workers respond to that? In, in these passages um, where Du Bois talks very briefly and not very coherently about this psychological wage, the implication is that these workers will do almost anything to hang on to this, to their superior status. Uh, and prevent blacks from gaining uh, rights and status. Um, it's almost as if there's a. There, it's almost as if they have this uh, psychological need for someone to be beneath them in the social order. Right? You have to mm-hmm. keep someone below you. You can't allow. You know, the white workers just couldn't allow the black workers to attain equality with them. But again, Du Bois doesn't really explain this very well. It's not a very strong argument to me and also has kind of, uh, you know, uh, really invidious consequences, this yeah. argument. Because if it's true of white workers, it's presumably true of black workers. Mm-hmm. That is to say, black workers too would try to keep someone, if they could, some other group beneath them right? Uh, so it's just, not a, it's just not a very strong argument. And it doesn't really explain why the white workers wouldn't come to uh, uh, try to unite, right, with, with black workers, to forge a united front against their common oppressor. Uh, and there were efforts to do that, of course, <clears throat> in the 19th century. And of course, into the 20th and you know up to the present day so it's been a uh, obviously there's been a very mixed record of interracial solidarity in this country mm-hmm. uh, racial divisions then and now continue to to be a very serious problem um, I don't think Du Bois really uh, you know explained this very well um, he had his ideas about what motivated uh, white racism, but he also clearly understood the possibility of uh, interracial solidarity. Mm-hmm. And and another argument he marshals, in fact, is that the ruling class always does everything it can to divide workers among themselves, right? To right. keep up animosity between black and white workers, precisely out of fear that they will, you know, that they will unify. Um. And so uh, there's that element as well. 
But I just don't think that Du Bois really, he didn't really set out to understand how interracial solidarity might be possible, right. when and where it was attempted, the sort of things which, uh, uh, which uh, made it more difficult here in specific times and places. Um, but he clearly did believe at the end of the day that, uh, you know, we need interracial solidarity. He spent right. much of his uh, last years arguing for, you know, the importance of interracial solidarity. He was sometimes very pessimistic about the possibility of it, but he certainly understood in principle how it's absolutely necessary, not only, you know, to bring about the socialism that he was committed to, but it was also necessary to destroy the racial oppression that was, you know, his main preoccupation for, for really his entire life. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think something that's kind of related is, you know, um, something that you point out in your piece is, is uh, taking Du Bois's Marxism seriously, um, of course, means also addressing some of its shortcomings, right? So, um, you know, where do you see his vision of socialism sort of going astray um, with regard, not just with regard to reconstruction, but also, of course, with regard to the Soviet Union? Yes, well, he, um, he kept his distance from the Communist Party for a great many years. Uh, I think this goes back to uh, disagreements and infighting between uh, the Communist Party and the NAACP back in the back in the twenties and thirties. But uh, after the Second World War, he really became uh, very close to the to the Communist Party. As I said earlier, he became mm-hmm. something of a so-called fellow traveler, and he eventually. Uh, just a couple of years before his death, uh, actually applied for membership in the in the Communist Party, uh, a very dwindling, uh, weak Communist Party at that point. Uh, this is following the uh, Khrushchev revelations and the invasion, Soviet invasion of Hungary, and so forth, um, which Du Bois defended. Uh, he also wrote an excruciatingly painful obituary to to Stalin, which uh, hmm. makes makes for difficult reading. Uh, he thought Stalin, you know, to be a great man, and so forth. So he he really became a committed um, Stalinist in his uh, final decades. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's kind of it's difficult, of course, to um, to understand entirely. Uh, the reasons behind this, but I, I, I do think it has something to do with uh, his long-standing um, kind of reverence for leadership, for strong leadership, mm-hmm. um, and um, the need for strong leadership, politically speaking. Um, and uh, he was famous for an idea that. Um, you know, the African-American community really needed a talented 10th to lead it um, kind of out of the political wilderness. That is, you know, the 10th of the black population, the educated, smart people, experienced people uh, could lead the way. He didn't have a great deal of faith in kind of ordinary, for a socialist in particular, he didn't have a 
you know, a great deal of faith in the capacity of ordinary people to uh, to kind of uh, run their own affairs. Uh, he really thought they, uh, especially those who are not well educated <clears throat> and lack kind of worldly experience, they really needed this uh, educated elite to to show them the way. And so I think that had, you know, that kind of attracted him to a kind of vanguardist uh, mm-hmm. politics and to a kind of top-down version of, of socialism. Um, it also led him actually to say in the book Black Reconstruction that, you know, after the Civil War, it probably would have been ideal, he suggested, if the suffrage were limited to if there was some kind of education mm-hmm. qualification to vote. So he was not actually, he had some doubts about the wisdom of universal suffrage for African-Americans. Well, mm-hmm. for all Americans uh, uh, whose uh, wisdom he doubted uh, and whose capacity for self-governance he doubted. Mm-hmm. So I think this has a lot to do with, uh, of course, the talented 10th, by the talented 10th, he meant people like himself. Right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> people like himself, smart, you know, accomplished people to, to lead their race to, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, to victory, to great achievements, et cetera. And I, I think that that kind of elitism uh, really, uh, um, you know, really infected his, his view of socialism mm-hmm. and led him and led him to this kind of Stalinist uh, politics. Right. All right. Well, maybe just to wrap up, um, you know, obviously, despite some of those shortcomings uh, and and the, the later life Stalinism, um, you obviously feel that Black Reconstruction is, is a very important text. It's very important and crucial to kind of understand it through this Marxist lens, as we've been talking about. And so I want to go back to maybe something that's sort of similar to the first question I asked you, which is, you know, Black Reconstruction at this point is almost what, like 100 years old, right? And so yeah. maybe like... Maybe the question, maybe the question to wrap up on is like, in a way, it's like, does any of this matter? Like, does it matter that some people see Black Reconstruction as like an intersectional text uh, rather than a Marxist text? Um, the final question for you, I suppose, is how does understanding Black Reconstruction through this Marxist lens that you're arguing for, how does this lead us to better sort of more concrete politics today? Yeah, well, it's a very good question. I mean, I, I think the book in some ways is very contemporary. Mm-hmm. Uh, with its concern for, you know, not just describing, but understanding uh, racial oppression, you know, what's what's the foundation of racial oppression, uh, and also what's the foundation of racism among working class people, white working class people in particular. And these are questions that uh, Du Bois takes up in, in the book. And for that reason alone, it's worth reading and, and hearing him out. Uh, but I think his, uh, but I think his uh, Marxist or political economic take on these questions is what is uh, very interesting and something you don't see all that much uh, these days. He's really kind of questioning the whole approach to racism and racial oppression that be, starts from uh, prejudice, right, mm-hmm. which starts from discrimination, which starts from culture um, and ideas. 
And he really wants to dig beneath those. Um, he's convinced Marx, you know, his reading of Marx has convinced him that, uh, um, you know, racism is uh, when it becomes attached to, linked to the material interests of classes, particularly powerful classes, then it can become, you know, a very powerful force indeed. So he wants to uh, he wants to demonstrate that connection between material interests, especially the material interests of uh, capitalists, of owner of the owning class, and how that uh, and how that can lead to racist practices, racial oppression, racial inequalities. Um, and so I think that sort of um, political economy approach to or Marxist approach to um, uh, racism is what's most interesting about the work, about the book and which makes it worth reading. And I think it's, that's what drew, uh, you know, that's what drew, uh, Du Bois to Marxism in the first place, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, you know, if you say these days that, you know, someone became a Marxist because they wanted to better understand racial oppression, a lot of people will just kind of, you know, uh, have a quizzical look on their face because, you know, they've been told, well, you know, Marxism, isn't that all about class and and economics? It, it doesn't really say anything about racism. Uh, well, on the contrary, one of the things I, I, I want to point out in this uh, piece I wrote is that there's a very rich Marxist tradition of trying to understand and theorize racial oppression. Right. Du Bois is a leading figure in it, but it also includes people like C.L.R. James, uh, people like Oliver Cromwell Cox, Eric mm -hmm. Williams, uh, Walter Rodney, Manning Marable, the list goes, the list goes on and on, Stuart Hall. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to think of a theoretical tradition. Uh, which has uh, produced such really rich analyses of racism uh, other than Marxism. Uh, so, so far from, uh, so far from being shocked that uh, someone might turn to Marxism to understand racism, uh, that, that shouldn't surprise us at all. The surprise is that so many people have this view of Marxism, that it's, that it's somehow all about uh, class and that race and gender and nationality and nationalism and other types of oppression have, uh, have you know, have somehow not been addressed by by Marxists, which uh, of course is the opposite of the truth. Um, so anyhow, I, I hope people will not only take a look at Du Bois, but some of these other authors in the Marxist tradition who um, uh, are trying to understand um, racial oppression on the basis of uh, class analysis. All right. Again, Jeff Goodwin's latest piece for Catalyst is Black Reconstruction as Class War. We will link that below. I highly recommend it. And of course, uh, co-sign all of the others, Jeff all of the other authors Jeff just mentioned. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. It was great to see you. Thanks very much.